Well, if you open up your word this morning to Acts chapter 20, we're going to go back a step. If you weren't here last week, I certainly hope you will take a moment to download and give a listen to Evan's message from Acts chapter 21. And we got to hear last week, one of the things I mentioned to Evan, just listening to him interact with the passage uh, made me just love the scriptures more. Just There's just richness in the Bible. If we'll just take a moment and stare into the word of God sometimes, just let that soak into us. And I felt like he did that so effectively last week. It just made me love the Bible from what he shared. I'm going to back up in these passages from Acts chapter 21. And the reason being is I'd like for us to, to, to take a good look at the topic of biblical leadership that's presented in these passages. There's a lot here. There's a lot for leaders to learn about. There's a lot for us to learn about leadership in the church. I'm going to call this taking a behind-the-scenes look because we're going to get to go behind the scenes a little bit. Paul's going to have a meeting with some individuals that are leaders in the body of Christ. We're going to get a little bit of a glimpse today into probably what was going on in Paul's life as he sought to lead. But I think there's, a, there's an appreciation for leadership in this passage. I don't want to scoot past it. Paul stops on his way back to Jerusalem and he has a meeting with a group of leaders in Ephesus. <clears throat> it's a rather important strategic moment because leadership is a rather important thing. It's a complicated thing. For some, it's an offensive thing. Some of us don't like leadership. We kind of do, we kind of don't. It it does something to us when people play a role of leading in our lives. But when you look at what God does, the day that God looks upon his people and they're in Egypt, they're in bondage, they're crying out and they're groaning, the condition of their life is being controlled and dominated by another force and they're looking for God out there to do something in their lives. And we get introduced to a man named Moses in that setting. When God decides it's time for people's lives to change, he installs leaders in the midst of that. Matter of fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find out where God didn't do that. When it was time for the kingdom of God to advance against enemies that were encroaching upon Israel... And it was a time for warfare and a time for pushing the borders of Israel back where they needed to go. We get introduced to a man named David. It just didn't happen. A man named David was involved in it happening. When, when God was restoring his people after exile and a period of, of discipline had taken place in the people of God's lives, we meet men like Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. God doesn't just move. God moves and leaders are involved in what God's doing. Therefore, leaders are an important topic in our lives. Understanding what God's assigned and receiving that in our lives. And and, and today when we go behind the scenes, looking at leadership's not always an easy topic. It's got issues with it that we need to, I think, have a better appreciation for. So look here with me in Acts chapter 20. Just look at the first couple of verses here to start. Verse 17. Now, from Miletus, speaking of Paul, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Now, 
remember this is this is Paul's missionary journey where he's now on his way back to Jerusalem. And along the way he's going to make a stop and he's going to be in the port of Miletus and he's going to call for the Ephesian elders about 40 miles away to come meet him and have a meeting with him before he sets sail and leaves that region of the world. Now Behind the scenes here, let, let's ask some, some questions that, that might be obvious questions, but we don't stop and ask sometimes. Well, who, who is this Paul guy? What's he, what's he doing in Asia? And, and who are these elders that he calls to himself? Right? Well, here's who Paul is. Whenever Paul introduced himself, he says, Paul, an apostle called by God. So Paul is a man on an assignment from God. Paul is a man in a, in a unique role assigned by God. So here's Saul of Tarsus minding his own business when God interrupts his life and explains to him, I've got a mission for you to live your life for. And Paul is assigned by God to be an apostle to take the gospel into Asia. So when he shows up, he's there by God's appointment. And, and he joins the ranks of guys like a David or a Moses or a Joshua, who all were men that God said, I want you to live amongst my people in a particular way. And I want you to have a particular effect upon their lives. And I'm, I'm going to anoint your life to accomplish that. That's who Paul is in their midst. And who are these elders? Well, these, these are elders that are, are leaders in the local church setting. So where Paul has ministered in Ephesus, what he would do in every local church setting is he would come, preach the gospel, care for people, crowds would gather, people would get saved, he would teach them further, and he would appoint elders in those local settings. And it's interesting, the passage a little bit later, and I'm going to develop some of this next week, but verse 28 in this passage Paul charges these elders and he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, what did that look like? These, these men are overseers in the church in Ephesus. What, what did it look like? Because according to Paul... They are chosen and appointed and put in place by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were in the church the day that they were recognized, you probably saw Paul or maybe some other leader recognize that so-and-so and so-and-so uh, are elders in the church. And it's not as though they just sat in a meeting and got really quiet and men began to levitate out of the room and got lifted up and they said, Ah, oh, the Holy Spirit has set apart so-and-so and so-and-so to be the leaders. All right, there was a mechanism in place, but behind that mechanism was the Holy Spirit caring for his church and putting leaders in place. That, that's who these elders are. And, and why that's important, it's important enough for Paul to call these men together and have a, have a final meeting with them. Because I, I think leaders play a role in what God is doing. I call it the role of being a, a means of grace in our lives. Right? If I asked for a show of hands this morning, I said, how many of you guys need grace in your life? You know, hopefully if you're a Christian, everybody's hand would go up quickly. Anybody here thinking that God has a shortage of grace? 
But there's an economy of grace, like, it's like finding oil in heaven. Sometimes there's a lot of grace, sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's cheap, sometimes it costs a lot to get it. But if you're really honest with me as well, do you always feel like you're connecting with the grace of God that God has for you? Do you ever feel like your life is too big for you? Do you ever feel like sin is reigning and ruling in your life and the grace of God is not reigning and ruling in your life? Do you ever feel detached from the joy that's presented in Scripture that you'd say, hey, you know, I'd describe my life in a lot of ways, but joy would not be one of them right now? Okay, in those moments, you're, you're not experiencing the grace that God says he's made available. And God has said his grace is sufficient for us. So if there's a disconnect between us and God's grace, I, I don't think we should shake our fist at heaven Say, God, what's your problem? I think God's made pretty clear that there's, there's no length to which he won't go to supply the grace that we need in our lives. Doesn't the cross kind of scream at us about that? If God wouldn't spare his own son, is there any grace that he will withhold from us? God, God's abundant in his grace. But there is, there is in scripture what we would call a means of grace. If you will, grace travels down highways. Grace gets installed in pipelines and God floods it into our lives, but you got to connect to the pipeline to experience that grace. So, you know, things like prayer are a means of grace. The word of God, revelation, truth is a means of grace in our lives. Leaders are a means of grace in our lives. They play a role in God's plan to be a highway through which grace travels to us and we get a chance to experience it. Now, leaders are not say this carefully because I didn't really tweak this out and study every angle on it, but leaders are not grace itself, but they're a means of grace, right? Justification is grace itself. The gospel is grace itself. The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit is grace in our lives, but leaders are a means of those things. They teach us about those things. They put us on a collision course with those things. They put our lives in touch with the grace of God. So if you and I don't have an appropriate appreciation for and connection with leaders, no matter how prickly that may be, no matter how low of an opinion any of us may have about leaders, no matter how much of a struggle that is because leaders are just human beings just like the rest of us, we may be having a hard time experiencing grace in our lives because leaders are a means of grace. And therefore, this is not a small subject. You can have lots and lots of oil sitting underneath the ground, but if you don't have a means of drawing it out, pipelining it, and getting into gas stations, you've you got a bunch of untapped resources in life. And grace can be that way for us. So, Leadership is a, is, a, is a big issue, and I want to spend this week and next week in it. We're going to look at verses 18 through 27 today and look at the manner of life of a leader, and then we'll look at verses 28 to 38 next week and look at the duty and responsibility of leaders. But let me just say this real quick. I don't want to assume that everyone here is a biblical scholar when it comes to the leadership that's described in the Bible, right? Uh, there's a lot of factors that go into how you hear a description of leaders, how we read about it, how fast you go past the passage and just don't let it mean anything to you, how much you wrestle with what it really means, right? There's, there's all kinds of blurry titles and terminologies today. So the apostle Paul, whoever he is, calls for a group of elders, whatever they are, and they come together, have a meeting in Miletus. How do you translate that into your world? What, what's, what's an elder? Is, is it like a parish priest? 
Right? Is he a reverend, minister, pastor? But what is it, a bishop? What's an elder, right? Well, you and I got all these terminologies floating around in our heads, don't we? Is he a guy who wears a collar? Is he an official? Does he mostly do weddings and funerals? Who are these guys and what do they do? Well, that's an important element for us to figure out. And it matters how you're interacting with the subject. Uh, your view of the church matters how you interact with leadership. I mean, what, what do you see the church as? Is it, um, is it sort of a nice gathering of nice people with some helpful volunteers? Of, you know, it's a place where we come for inspiration. You know, we come on Sundays and just want to hear something that touches life and kind of helps, helps us make our way through. Maybe if we get into really dire circumstances, there's some counseling available. It's, but it's, it's very much a self-help group. It's got, it's got a spiritual emphasis to it. We kind of like that part of our lives. And it falls in the category of some kind of spiritual united way or Red Cross or kind of a rotary club for people who love God kind of a thing. All right, now, if, if that's what you feel like the church is and then leadership acts like a leader in your life, you're not going to know what to do with it. Because leaders in the Bible think they're called to be a means of grace. They, they think they're called to function a certain way. They're called a shepherd people, which means they're going, to have, they're going to have strong opinions for you to interact with because there's a realm of protection and care as we'll explore next week. So there's going to be force to leaders being in your life that doesn't feel like the guy who got elected to be the Rotary Club chairman. It's going to feel quite different. And then factor in this, you're an American. You're an American with a very loud culture when it comes to dealing with leaders. Leaders exist for us to have something to talk about. Leaders are the reason why talk radio exists and why uh, news talk programs exist, right? If all the leaders take the week off, you know, I mean, Obama took two weeks off, played golf. All of a sudden, everybody was criticizing the guy's golf game. It's like, wow, oh, guy's got nothing to talk about except, hey, we just stare at the leaders and make comments. Yeah, he was an idiot today. He's a bigger idiot today. This is why he's an idiot. Can we call in some specialists to explain why this guy was an idiot and, and why he did? What was he thinking? Let's go across town and talk to so-and-so. What was he thinking? What do you think he was thinking? And we watch this day in and day out. And so we think, wait, how do we interact with leaders? Well, we just wait for him to do something that we can evaluate. That's what we do. Because we're Americans, doggone it. And in America, unlike other places in the world, every vote counts. So my vote counts. And I've got an opinion. Oh, and by the way, in America, every opinion counts too. As a matter of fact, challenge, try and go make laws that protect everybody's opinions. Because we want every special interest group to have a voice. We want our government to stand up for it. I said this a few weeks ago, gender related issues. Let's make laws for people who have gender confusion, which is less than like 0.2% of the population. But we, but we want to validate that opinion. So we live in a culture that is hostile and aggressive and it's got full of opinions towards leaders. We watch people teach us how to do that. And every opinion is valid, so we're all welcomed and encouraged to have it. And then God comes along and says, here, here, have, have some leaders in your lives. Let the church have some leaders. Does anybody think you walk into the church and just turn that off? 
They just, oh, well, not in the church. I mean, I don't do that in the church. Uh, no, I don't know. Go on a blog and read it. And actually, don't go on a blog and read it. But if you do, and you go on a blog that's in the Christian world, you'll find out people behave just like that. Horribly just like that. Right, so this is a, this is a live subject, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to chase a giant rabbit in just a moment, warning you in advance, um, because part of what I want to talk about in behind the scenes is I want to take you into the leadership that exists amidst the tyranny of opinions. There are opinions about leadership, and we're going to explore Paul's opinions because Paul had an opinion about his own leadership. And most of us are going to be on board with it. Most of us aren't going to go, oh, Paul, you are so full of it. You didn't live like that. That's not how you were. We're good with Paul living like this. Now, we're not good with a lot of others claiming that they live like this, but we're all right with Paul living this way. So we're going to explore Paul's opinion for a moment. We're going to explore the opinion of others because not everybody agreed with Paul's opinion about himself. And then we're going to explore our own opinion about leadership and how it is that we are receiving of it. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to try and do this part really quickly. Not because it's unimportant, uh, but because I just feel like I can use some of this next week and and we can come back to it a little bit. But Paul's going to highlight six things about his life. Six noble characteristics. Six qualities of who he was as a leader. And, and what I'd like to, to kind of peek your ears for here is, is this is the raw materials that every leader should be ambitious for. If you want to be ambitious for something, this is a list to be ambitious about. You know, leadership has that strange little quality to it is that there's few leaders and lots of people. Well, we, we like that, don't we? A lot of us do. A lot of us like the opportunity to be a few among many. I like to be in the in crowd. I like to be thought of specially. So leadership has built into it an invitation to be ambitious, but not always for these kinds of things. This list from Paul is the raw materials for godly leadership. This is what the life of a leader should look like. And I want to say these things carefully enough for every leader to hear it, for every one-day leader to hear it, for every young person in the room who one day God will raise you up to be a leader in his house. And these are the qualities for you to be fostering and seeking and open to in your life as you walk, whether you're 10 years old, 15 years old, 20 years old, however old you are. These are qualities worth looking for in your life. Let's listen to Paul. As he describes his life in verse 18, excuse me, says, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God, of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that 
imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let me just take a water break just a second. Not sure that's going to fix me, but you'll just have to deal with the way it sounds. All right, let me just look at these qualities real quickly. Paul says, I lived among you as a leader. Leaders, what Paul described his life as was a life of serving. Leadership before is anything else. It is serving. It is people who have a heart postured toward others to see their lives and to be drawn toward their lives in a particular way for a particular motive. And and that's important because by nature, fallen man is a user of people. And if you don't know that about yourself, I feel sorry for the people around you. By nature, when man kind of got clipped from God and the fall took place, and we no longer drew from God the sense of care, it's okay, God is with us, the reinforcement of his love, our belonging to him, we began gasping for air in a panic. We began to be that guy drowning in the ocean that every lifeguard is told, do not get near that guy. He will drown you. And if you do get near the guy, punch him in the face before you try and help him. Because his interest in that moment of panic is himself. This is how we live life. This is why our relationships don't work right. This is why gatherings don't work right. Because we're, we're not bent towards serving the interest of others. We want everyone to serve us. And, and yet, if you're called to lead, you're called to flip that thing and do it backwards. And value the needs of others above your own need. And there's no greater example of that than Philippians chapter 2. Where Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. For though he was in the form of God, did not commit, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? His ambition was rescued from having to have it a certain way for himself, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. This is, this is the high king of glory. This is the originator of it all. This is the God for whom everything is created and is directed toward him and his greatness, Yet he is found as a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross because that's what we needed him to do. And he put our needs ahead of his own comfort, ahead of his own interests. That's what, that's what being a servant is. Now, let me just say this carefully and, and quickly because you, know, you can distort who Jesus was so that you don't really, you don't really involve him with the gospel. He just becomes a heroic, interesting guy. You know, Jesus and Gandhi can get mentioned in the same sentence then. And Mother Teresa, all great, inspiring examples to all of us. Jesus was an inspiring example of a servant, and I hope you will seek to do likewise with your life. Um, but if that's what church is sounding like to you, can I just tell you that that's a church that it comes close but misses by a mile. Because this passage isn't here uh, for one of those moral mimicking moments. Jesus lived morally, you live morally. Here's a moral example in the Bible. Now you try and be a moral person. Jesus was inspirational. Aren't you inspired? He was talking about Jesus. He was a great man. Went about doing incredible things. Laid his life down for others. Undeserving people. That's how we should live our lives. Okay, you didn't hear the gospel at all yet. You just heard a description of of some other behavior. And me say, you should do that too. That's not the gospel. That's just, hey, this guy was cool. Why don't you try and be cool? And that's not what this passage is about either. This passage is about recognizing that I I don't need and you don't need an inspiring example. That's not my greatest need. My greatest need is to stop being alienated from the life of God. That's my greatest need. The reason why the fall affects me, the reason why selfishness can affect my life is because without the life of God, these things aren't natural to me. You know, laying down your life for loving others. Everything about me is natural to me. So what Jesus comes and does is not provide an inspiring example, although he is an inspiring example. He comes and lays his life down as a servant and is humble to the point of obedience to go to a cross so that he can receive on that cross the penalty of our sin and remove it as a barrier so that we can be restored to the life of God. And when that life re-enters this life, the one who is the servant enters into my life as well. So Christianity is never you in all of your power and might determining you're going to try and imitate the ultimate servant who you've ever heard of named Jesus. Now the gospel is what Jesus did as a servant was restore us to God so that the life of God could return to live in us So that being a servant would now be who we are. Not some hostile, selfish individual trying to imitate somebody else who was that. There's a big difference in that category. If you define serving, I put a quick definition there. Serving is a life of setting aside your interests and preferences and benefits for the sake of God's work in others. God is at work in people. God is seeking for his glory to be known in their lives. And you and I are invited into that process as servants. Now, let me just move through these quickly because I'll come back and try and pick up a few thoughts on that next week. Not only servants, Paul said, you know how I was serving the Lord with all humility. Paul served the Lord with a quality about him described by the word humility. 
I define humility as the personal freedom to not pursue and promote my own greatness because I'm convinced that only God should be seen as great. It's, it might be easier to notice when you're not being humble than to notice when you are being humble. You're not being humble when you get in the business of coaxing, manipulating, flattering, controlling, whatever it is that you do to get people to further your own greatness project. When you're doing that, you're not being humble. And, and that agenda starts to control you. See, there's certain things you will do and certain things you won't do. There are certain people you'll be around. There are certain people you won't be around. There's certain activities that you'll go ahead and make your life to try and pull those things off. And there's certain ones you'd never try because it doesn't further your, your greatness project. All right, well, for Paul to go where he went and live the life that he lived just because he, he wasn't in the market for his own greatness. I served you guys in humility. What my project was for others to see the greatness of God. If you saw me, you didn't see me. That was never the issue. I was there to serve so that you could see the greatness of God. And then he described his life as a life of tears and trials. Uh, Leaders, people who are living in the will of God will experience tears and trials. Paul was in Asia, and Asia was not an easy place to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. When you look at Paul's life in Asia... And this comes back in just a moment, and you'll see it. People who criticized Paul felt that the, the poor quality of his life was a revealer that God was not with him. God was not for him. And, and you can kind of get around that too. Kind of the, the faith movement has produced some of that side effect. That if you, if you use faith the right way in your life, and, and you're walking in a way that you're supposed to be walking, then words like affliction and despair and deadly peril won't describe your life. But how many of you know Paul was right in the middle of the will of God when this was going on? Paul's not out of God's will when he describes his life as, I'm, I'm afflicted. I'm despairing. Despairing, really? Despairing? Like giving up hope despairing? Yes, Keith, exactly. Like giving up, like there's a sentence of death on our lives. Like, what, like what, what are we just appointed to this? Is that, what, is that what this is, right? How many guys have just had a series of bad events take place in your life? And you just, you know, like the eighth one hits and you just turn to God and you go, what are you doing? Just feel, I'm doing, what am I just appointed? You, you're killing me, right? Is the experience. That, that, that's Paul. You don't think that's Paul. I'm grateful that he wrote down, that's Paul. And he's right in the middle of the will of God. This is true for every Christian, but you know, especially if you're leading in the body of Christ, if God's called you to do that one day, please, please don't think you're signing on for a life that won't have tears and trials in it. It will. For God's at work in those as well. 
Paul said he lived a life of not shrinking from declaring what is profitable. Paul had a message. He was responsible with it. He was faithful to it. He didn't alter it. He didn't, he didn't shrink back. Now, he uses that term a couple of times. and I'm going to come back to why I suspect he did. Paul said, leading was a life of not counting my life as precious to myself. Oh, this is a wonderfully liberating, but a huge risk-taking way to live your Christian life. Not counting your life as precious to your own agenda, your own plans, your own preferences for what's comfortable and not comfortable, the path that you'd like to walk versus the path that maybe God has for you to walk. Paul reached a place in his walk with God that he didn't count his agenda as so precious that that's what he was holding before God. You will do this, God, and you will only do this with me. I saw an interesting video presentation a week or so ago. Um, some of you guys will know who David Platt is. David's a pastor of Brook Hills Church in uh, Birmingham, where our dear Matt and Paula Mason are. Um, David recently wrestled through God calling him to stop being a pastor and to be the president of the International Mission Board for the Southern Baptists. It's obviously a huge life change for him. Uh, But for a guy who loves missions the way he loves missions, uh, it uh, ended up being this is what God has, and he did accept that position. But he said something in explaining his decision. I love the the illustration. Uh, And apparently he's used this quite a bit. He says, you know, for me, life is like a blank check. And I I just hold it up to God, and I offer my check to him, and I say, Lord, spend it wherever you will. It's a blank check. Lord, write it out however you want for however much, however long. Just spend it the way you will. I I think that's kind of what it is to not consider my life as precious to myself. Sometimes we've spent everything in our account and God wants to write a check and we're kind of like, I'm sorry, God, I got got no energy, got no time, got no willingness. It's all been spent. That's not Paul. It's not how we should be either not counting our lives as precious to ourselves. The last thing he says was he lived a life of being innocent of the blood of others. And I think that's very sobering. And next week I'm going to spend some time in that by way of leaders being reminded that you're, you're, you're not just leading a concept. You're not just leading some program in the church. You're not just a, uh, a hawker of information. There are people's blood involved here. We, we have a responsibility toward people. Right? We're, not, uh, we're not in charge of pavement. We're not in charge of structures. There's people involved in doing ministry. And leaders have responsibility. It's sobering to think Paul could look at his life and say, hey, I had responsibility and I, I fulfilled those responsibilities. I'm innocent of the blood of people. It's not because of my neglect that there are issues here. And so this is Paul's description of... His life and walk as a leader. This is, this is Paul. This is behind the scenes, Paul presenting his heart to the Ephesian elders. Now, I find it very interesting, curiously, strangely interesting of the timing of what Paul has as an outline for this. Because when he opens up, you yourselves know how I lived. You can vouch for me. You know, you know my life. I think there's a reason why Paul sounds that way. I don't think he's just talking. 
the timing of this, if you remember, remember Peter had a map up a couple of weeks ago. Paul had left Ephesus, like in my mind, map, right? Macedonia, Achaia, Ephesus. He leaves Ephesus, goes to Macedonia, heads down from Macedonia, goes to Corinth, goes back to Macedonia, and then travels to this meeting that we're talking about today. Not a long period of time in doing that. During his time in Macedonia, before coming to this meeting here, Paul writes 2 Corinthians and Romans. When you go read 2 Corinthians, it is a catfight. It is Paul from beginning to end defending himself, one blow after another. Now, if you're not aware of that, you don't pick up on how ugly some of the comments were. But there were folks in Corinth who didn't feel the way Paul felt about his ministry. They felt quite differently. And he spends a lot of time in 2 Corinthians defending himself, explaining himself, disagreeing with folks, calling to task people who were attacking him. So he's just written that letter. Over a period of time, he's been having that engagement. Corinth is just across the sea from Ephesus, and both of them were very busy port cities, so people came back and forth a bit. So it's very easy for Ephesus to have been affected by things happening in Corinth. So when Paul calls the elders to himself, I find it a little curious where he goes. You guys, you know me. From the moment I was with you, you know the kind of life that I lived. And he lists off all these areas. And they sound an awful lot like areas where Paul was being questioned and challenged in his leadership. I want to take you behind the scenes a little bit. Because, you know, sometimes we've got, you know, we've got the Apostle Paul. I mean, he wore some kind of a Superman outfit and had like Captain America's shield for a Bible and just flew places. You know, the man was just untouched. There was no, there was no weakness in him. He never was human. Uh, I don't think so. I think Paul was a leader and he got the tar beat out of him by people. And some of them weren't just hostile Jews. Some of them were people in the church that he was trying to lead. So behind the scenes, leaders who have to lead sometimes have to heal from the very people that they're leading. And so Paul's in an interesting spot here. Right? Paul said that he didn't shrink back He declared to them what was profitable, right? He was effective in teaching them the truth. Is that true? Well, according to 2 Corinthians, just throw out some thoughts at you here. They're not in your outline, I don't think. Chapter 10, verse 10 says, they say his letters, Paul writing his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Guy shows up here, leads a meeting. Anybody getting anything out of this? I mean, Anybody got anything out of the Apostle Paul meeting that was here last week? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. Paul, defending himself, says, For I was not at all inferior to those super apostles. His ministry was being called into account as to whether or not it even should have been happening. I mean, you and I are like, the Apostle Paul, oh my gosh, how could somebody say that? Somebody was saying it. Somebody was saying it so significantly that he repeats it. And then God writes it down in his word for you and I to read it today. Pretty significant. Right in your outline there, Romans chapter 3, verse 8, right? Written while Paul's in Macedonia. He says, and why not do evil? That good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Their condemnation is just. 
Right, so Paul's teaching on the grace of God. He's teaching on why it is that God does what he does about how grace trumps sin. So no matter how big sin is, grace is bigger. Right now, all of us cool with that? Well, there are some people who listened to Paul make that presentation and they, they sort of twisted it. Or they believe Paul really was saying this. Paul teaches that it doesn't matter how you live. Grace is so big, sin all you want. Sin some more. Grace is bigger than that. As we're slanderously being charged with saying. There are people slandering the Apostle Paul. Last week, Evan mentioned this verse in Acts 21, verse 21. It says, they have been told about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Now, there's a little bit of truth in that, isn't there? Because the New Testament, by the way, is not forsaking Moses. It is fulfilling Moses. And there's a big difference. If you're an amateur Bible player, amateur Bible players make the Old Testament hated by the New Testament. You ever do that? You pick up the New Testament like, hey, me and the New Testament, we're in this thing together. And that, that Old Testament thing, that big barbed wire fence, it's electric. Right at the end of, beginning of Matthew there, keep that nasty Old Testament away from us. We want to go there, all that legalism. It's like God had a really bad plan right up until Matthew. And then he goes, oh my gosh, I could have had a V8. Uh, let's, let's send John uh, the Baptist and he, hey, go announce a whole new deal. I've thought this out a whole lot better. That old, that thing's not going to work. I'm abandoning the whole thing. And this guy, Paul, when you find him, tell him just curse the whole thing. Just hate it. That, that's not the New Testament. The New Testament is fulfilling Moses. But yet some people weren't hearing fulfillment. They judged Paul as saying, abandon, forsake. Old Testament's wrong. Was that really what Paul was saying? But it was so significant, it pops up over and over and over again in the New Testament. Paul had to face that. Was Paul's character and ministry respectable and done with integrity? Well, look at these verses. In 1 Corinthians, go all the way back to 1 Corinthians, Paul's defending himself. Chapter 9, verse 1, he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, which apparently there were others making it quite clear, that dude's not an apostle to me. At least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense. To those who would examine me. Remember, this is a man. I just want, I want, to, I want you to go behind the scenes a little bit with me. This is the man who had his brains beat in from town to town because he loved the work of God in people's lives so much that he would put his life on the line again. This is the guy who probably limped and had aches and had broken things and had things that didn't heal right because he loved the purpose of God in people's lives. This is the guy who's having to defend himself from the attacks of people who decided they had an opinion about him as a leader. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. It says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that, that we behaved in the world. I have to defend my behavior with simplicity and godly sincerity, not... By earthly wisdom. And Paul, why is Paul saying that? See, this is, this is what you need to realize when you're reading letters in the New Testament. You don't get the letter that generated this letter. 
You just get the answers to the questions. So you don't know what the questions are, but clearly in this context, a statement is made about Paul that his wisdom is earthly wisdom. The man doesn't seek God. And he's having to defend himself and say, that's not the case. It's not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. A few verses later, he says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. That's an interesting thing, right? Leadership is a means of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating? Interesting term. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, all at the same time? I don't know how you've read that in the past, but do you understand he's being accused in this moment? Paul, you said you were coming to us. Did you pray about that, Paul? See, that's the thing about these, you know, shoot from the hip leaders. They don't don't pray. They don't pray. You know why they don't pray? Because they're too busy to pray. They're too busy to pray. You got too much going on here. The criticism that comes out. This man's not praying. He said he was coming. Now he's not coming. Make up your mind, Paul. You just sound like you're just following leadings of the flesh. And Paul has to defend himself from that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Paul says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Man, we went out of our way to make sure we weren't creating any offenses. Nobody needs to show hands here, but you know, sometimes leaders do everything they can imagine to do to avoid creating an offense. And yet, you can't. He says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and through dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters, like we're the outsiders, like we're coming in and we're not a part of this. And yet we're true as unknown and yet well-known as dying. And behold, we live as punished. We're under some punishment and yet not killed as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything. Now, listen, this is a strange thing here. This is Paul having to make a case for himself. Because there were people who looked at his life, looked at his ministry, looked at things he taught, looked at things that they didn't agree with or he didn't understand and found fault with him so that he's got to pull out a whole list of things. But, you know, aren't I doing this right and this right and this right? Didn't we do this and this and this among you? Isn't this the life that we lived among you? I think this is why Paul sounds the way he does to the Ephesian elders. You yourselves know the life that we lived. You saw the bruises and the beatings and the sacrifice imprisonments and the difficulty and the heartache that we went through. Listen, this is not just a apostle Paul lesson. This is a lesson when you and I deal with people, right? Here's the reality of dealing with leaders in the body of Christ. Here's the reality of dealing with anybody who's trying to lead anything. Here's the reality of parents who live with kids. Here's the reality of husbands and wives. It doesn't matter who you pick. Everybody's life is like Baskin Robbins. 
It's 31 flavors. Right? This is profound. Write it down. I'm sorry, I'm making you hungry. <laughs> there, there are about 31 different aspects and categories to who you are. You've got professional activities. You've got home activities. You've got relational activities. You've got your extended family. You've got siblings. You've got church involvement. You've got a personality that's, a, that's got multiple aspects to it that are really strong and wonderful and some that are weak and difficult. You've got 31 flavors. And what these guys do with Paul is they, they pick out about three or four flavors and they say spoiled, sour, bad. And Paul finds himself in this posture having to pull out all the other flavors and say, well, what about this? What about this? We did this and this and this and this. Right? Do you ever do that to somebody? Just think for, you, for a moment about how you engage the weaknesses or it may not even be their weaknesses. Is it just you interpreting that they don't do it right in this category? Whether it's a church leader or whether it's somebody you live with. Do you stop for a moment and realize this person's 31 flavors and there's three of them that I really don't care for. And you'll notice you're doing it when you hear them start defending themselves with all the other flavors. They'll notice and they'll present to you that you don't bring up the other stuff. You just stare at what I don't do well in your opinion. That's what Paul's experiencing here. And we do that to each other, right? Not just a church thing. He goes on and he says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Right now, apparently there's some kind of an issue here of, of how his honesty and how his integrity was before the people. Paul says, what do you want to know? We've, we've, we've spoken honestly and openly. There's nothing hidden here. You're, you're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. At, at some point, it's appropriate for leaders, it's appropriate here for Paul to say, hey, you know what? Okay, I've been pincushioned long enough. Let me, let me turn around and tell you something about you. I've let you beat on me. I've let you say this about me. I've tried to work with you. I've been patient. I've been open. Listen, you're not having a problem because of something I've done. You're having a problem because of you. You might need to hear that. In return, he says, I speak to his children Widen your hearts. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. But some of you think we have. And we can't fix that. You're going to have to make room in your hearts. You're going to have to fix something in your Hearts, if you want to receive any kind of leadership from us. This is pretty significant. I won't go through the details, but if you track with Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13, four, four chapters in 2 Corinthians are specifically devoted to Paul defending himself from the attack of others. Indeed, He's the apostle Paul, for goodness sake. I mean, what a door of criticism must be open for everybody who's lesser than him. This dude shows up 
It's got a resume a mile long. There's miracles flowing all over the place. The guy teaches at a level that no one's ever seen before. But he's got to generate four chapters of defending himself in 2 Corinthians. Are you kidding me? All right, now go behind the scenes with this man. You want to hear some sad stuff, right? You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to turn real quickly. This, this is sad. This is the end of Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. He says, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Verse 1 of chapter 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I mean, what did you think this was about? You thought this was about something else, didn't you? This is about Paul. You guys have been attacking me. This is the third time I'm just, I'm exhausted in addressing this. He's, he wrote about it in 1 Corinthians. He's visited them. He's written other letters. I'm exhausted in talking about this. All right, let's establish everything here. Verse 6. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. All right, can you go behind the scenes with this man? This man has labored in Corinth. He planted the church. He spent his life. He risked his life. He did everything he knew how to do. And his conversation at the very end with them is, I I hope you'll do the right thing even if you think we have failed. This this is behind the scenes what it feels like for leaders to lead sometimes. Here's a reality. I, I don't like this. Matter of fact, I really hate this part. You see that? I think I put this in your outline. It says, where leadership is given, there is controversy and disagreement and questioning of motives and sides being taken and gossip and quarreling and hostility and defensiveness and a need for leaders to stay motivated. And depending on how far into leading you have grown in your life, is your experience in these categories. When leadership does what it's supposed to do, see, this is where you're being an American and having a certain view of the church. It's like you get blindsided by a strong presentation in your life. You get blindsided when somebody steps in and says, hey, hey, how, how are you leading your life? Are you, are you involved sinfully right now? But you're kind of like, whoa, 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 time out, man. It's like the Rotary Club. What are you asking me that for? Don't, don't, be, don't be jamming in my business like that, man. Okay, well, no, no, let me just break this to you. This ain't the Rotary Club. This is the church of the living God where leaders have been appointed to say stuff that ruffles you the wrong way sometimes, interferes with your life, gets underneath your skin. Sometimes it's said exactly the way it needed to be said and it does that. Sometimes it's said in a way that it didn't need to be said. And then, then you fall into the category of Paul saying, look, uh, even if you find that we did fail the test, I hope you will do the right thing. You know, that's part of the call of being a Christian. 
Everybody around you doesn't have to do it right. Every leader doesn't have to do it right, but you still need to respond right. And so do I. But the second leadership pokes its head into your life, you know, if everybody in your life has got an opinion that's got nothing to do with you or anything you're involved with, those people have a very hard time offending you. But the second a leader pokes his nose into your business from a pulpit, from a small group, from personal involvement, and, and gives you the impression that you're not doing something right. right. I can just use an illustration right now and send half of you home hacked off at me. In a second. It's like, oh, well, that's what he thinks that people like me ought to be doing. I'm not doing that. And I know I'm not doing that. My back is all up. I'm angry now. See, the second leadership actually leads, it becomes a living target. Now, if it doesn't lead and leaves everybody alone, doesn't expect anybody to follow, that doesn't happen. The second you lead, you get these things. You get controversy. You get people disagreeing about that. I don't know if he said that right. I don't know if we should be doing that. I don't know if that's the right thing to do. You get disagreement questioning of motives. Why would he do that? Why would he say that? I wonder what he really meant by that. That sounded like something he said a while ago. Just busy going. I bet. Well, you know, he's related to. There you go. Right. Welcome to behind the scenes. All right. Now that we know that about leadership operating in our lives. Paul had opinions about the life that he was leading. Others had opinions about him and his leadership. And you and I have opinions. And my question and my concern is, how are you managing your opinions? How am I managing my opinions? I live in America. There's a big deal made about my opinions. I think all my opinions should be published. And if you don't feel that way, I'll start my own blog. And all eight people who read my blog on a rare basis will justify why I spend two hours every day writing in it. What what kind of humility is populating our own opinions when we weigh them out on other people, leaders, people in our lives, etc.? Here's, here's a warning to us. I don't know if I'll put this in your outline. Warning. We are living in an age that is destroying the means of grace of leaders in our lives. It's destroying it. When you sit down, well, I know I rag on Rush Limbaugh and Fox News because that's what most of us tune into. When you sit down, can you do this just from now? I'm not telling you tune out. I'm not telling you don't appreciate that there's some logical and reasonable conservative views there. Can you listen to them and learn what not to do? Can you take some notes? Can you compare what the Bible calls you to in being respectable toward those that God has put in authority and compare it with how it's being modeled for you by these folks who are belittling, disrespectful, questioning every motive? Listen, if you don't see that with your eyes, you will begin to do it in your heart and it will erode leadership as it exists, even in the church. God's alternative to questionable leaders or even failed leaders is not no leaders. No matter what you do in God's plan, every time God moves, he shows up with leaders. Every time. So if you think one day we're going to get cured of bad leaders by just having this no leader thing go on, you're going to have to write some more in the Bible because it's nowhere in the Bible. 
So at some point, if you had bad leaders and you're trying to figure out what to do with the next set of leaders in your life, you're just going to have to do the best you can. Because at some point, you're going to think those leaders are bad leaders too. They may just be in three or four flavors, right? Hopefully you can say, yeah, you know, pretty weak here. I don't think they do that right, but other flavors, I'm good. Hopefully we can do that. But here's, here's some advice in aiding our opinions with humility. Before grading others in their category of responsibility, take an honest look at yourself in your categories of responsibility. This is, this is, if you'll do that, this is where humility will get birthed. Listen, I'm not saying this so you'll leave others alone and you won't have any opinions that they ever have to interact with. I'm just saying that today the opinions get shared and there's no humility involved. And the reason why there's no humility involved is because people don't look at themselves before they speak about you. I don't know, I'm trying. <laughs> they're, they're busy reading the blog report about what somebody did on the other side of the universe in the name of Jesus. No self-inspection takes place before they type their comments on that no good, lousy, I can't believe. That's the problem with everybody. Response. No humility. And I think there's no humility because there's not a lot of self-searching going on, right? And here's my invitation for those of us who want to criticize, and I, and I do this, I criticize leaders. Today's church that is featured in blogospheres is more in love with holding others to an ideal view than they are of holding themselves to even a reasonable view. All right, so here's some verses. Before having an opinion on how others lead, first consider how you're doing as a follower. Right? Listen to these verses. I think they're just written out, maybe up on the screen here. This is what you're called to, and I'm called to as a follower. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And I don't think that's referring to an account to you. I think that's referring to a much more serious account, an account to God himself. But that guy's screwing up, man. And he will give an account for that one day to God. No, I want him to give an account to me and everybody else. Well, maybe you can pull that off and maybe you can't. But we do know he is going to give an account. So you can simmer down. If you're waiting for that guy to get it, God needs to get it, man. Well, he's going to get it. In, in the most perfect way, the righteous judge who actually knows the whole situation rather than the 1% that you know about it is actually going to weigh in and he will, he will do what's right. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Right? Esteem them very highly. Not, don't, don't constantly be suspicious. I'm always suspicious. Because you know, Keith, come on, you know, you give somebody an ounce of power. Power always corrupts people. I'm just looking for it. So the second I encounter a person with power, I start investigating where's the corruption. Just know what's going on here somewhere. I know this guy's taking advantage of people with that. Wait, okay, you can busy yourself with that, but I'm just looking at this passage. You can pull your Fox News master's degree out and be suspicious and criticize, or you can do what the Bible says and respect and esteem very highly 
the Apostle Paul? I don't think the Apostle Paul ever deserved to be giving this defense to these people. But yet he did, and he was. First Timothy 5. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. First Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, listen, let me go back to where I started. Leadership is what God uses to further his agenda. Paul, what are you doing in Asia? And who are these elders that you've called to yourself? The secret meeting that nobody else was invited to, by the way. Well, this is who God is using to further his kingdom in Asia. That's who these guys are. How we relate to them, how we receive grace from them becomes very difficult if we don't do the verses that I just described. If my heart is not to obey leaders and submit to leaders and respect leaders and esteem them highly and consider them worthy of double honor, to support them financially, to be subject to them and to be clothed in humility and to live at peace and seek to have peace be the thing that guides me in my relationship with them. If I extract all that out, but yet I am sure I am called to the ministry of criticism and correction and evaluation. I don't have any of these qualities in me because I'm not paying attention to those verses. I'm just here to critique, to give you some input, to find where it's going wrong. All right, that was the Corinthians to Paul. Because I think if they had had these attitudes, you'd have a very different letter in 2 Corinthians. I think this is why Paul presents himself the way he does. Now, Paul stops and visits with these leaders. Because leadership is a non-negotiable. Leadership exists for God to further his purpose in a lot of people's lives. That's why leadership exists. So let me just close with this thought. Let me translate this into maybe some other categories. Not only as it comes to how we walk together as a church in New Testament leadership, but how you do with one another in the category of opinions that bring judgment. How you do husbands and wives. How you doing before you stand before your spouse and make a presentation. How you doing first looking at your own responsibilities and weighing how you're doing. Find out how many of your 31 flavors are spoiled and smell like stinky milk. You know, if you look at that, it may humble you so that the way you go to your spouse is very different. Doesn't mean you won't address things. Doesn't mean you won't honestly bring observations and concerns. But now you're you're aware of your own weaknesses, and so you're gonna go humbly now. Parents with children. Parents, how many of us press the rewind button and zoom yourself back to being 13 years old? 15 years old, if you can remember that far back, 17 years old. And think, what kind of decisions were you making? How often did you clean your room up? When was the last time you offered to take the garbage out? Why did you? You know, when I, when I rewind to those moments, it, it's, it's, 
you know, it's, it's not good press there for me. That's not an impressive season of life for me. So when I, I go to deal with my children, does, oh, does that mean, oh, I just let my kids do whatever then? No. It just means when I go to deal with them, I deal with them understandingly, and I deal with them with some humility, and, and I'm aware that I, yeah, I would have ignored that. I would have done that too, worse. <laughs> That's the thing about I'm, all my kids. I have much worse stories than any of the ones that they've managed to generate so far. So it's very easy for me just to think, God, thank you that I'm not raising me. Oh. Uh. But, you know, we do this with our opinions toward friends, right? When was the last time a friend overlooked your birthday? Didn't send you a text? Didn't do anything special? And you stop and you back up and go, okay, what have I done for others on their birthdays? Usually forget. Usually two days later or never even acknowledge it. Right, and you get humbled by who you are Okay, now what are you going to do with your opinion about others? Right, so this is not just a leadership issue. It's a relational issue in our lives. Well, let's stand up together. Lord, as we began our time in this message today, Lord, aware of our need for grace. Lord, we need grace. We need what you do and only you can do. We need the strength that comes by the Spirit. We need you, God, awakening things in us that have grown dead, giving us ears to hear things that are life and building up and strengthening us. Lord, we are in need of grace. And you have designed for grace to travel down highways. And leadership is one of them. Lord, it's why Paul felt it's so important for him to perhaps clear up any issues that these Ephesian elders had been hearing about him and his time with them as well as to charge them with their responsibilities in a season when it was perhaps not easy to lead, but yet for them to be found faithful to lead. Lord, your grace is still traveling down highways. It's still found in places where fallible, limited, weak men, parents, Husbands seek to lead others. Lord, the times we face are not easy times. The days ahead seem dark. Lord, we cannot afford to not have a healthy, operative connection with leadership in our lives. So, Lord, would you take us behind the scenes? Make us human, Lord. Make leaders human. Make us humble. Guard our opinions, Lord. It's not a talk radio program. This is the church. Make us careful before we enter something on a blog or comment, Lord. The world doesn't just need to hear people vomiting. So Lord, help us. Help us by learning behind the scenes from the Apostle Paul. What was it like for this man to lead and care for others? Lord, may we benefit from it in all the places where leadership exists in our lives today. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Have a great week.